How long, O Lord, must I cry for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The world is crumbling all around me. And Lord, you seem unable or unwilling to do anything. The prophet had warned his people what would happen if they did not turn, if they did not change their ways. He, he warned and he watched and he prayed that some might listen, that some might relent. But they did not. They would not. And so on the horizon comes calamity. Calamity in the form of Babylon. Babylon the mighty, they are a feared and dreaded people with horses swifter than leopards and fiercer than wolves at dusk. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They come bent on violence, their hordes advancing like a desert wind and gathering prisoners like sand. The prophet's name is Habakkuk. And he's watching his mighty marauding Babylon come charging towards Israel. Babylon is coming and in the midst of the terror... As adrenaline is rushing, as your heart rate has doubled, we read that the righteous one will live by faith. That is, when all is going wrong, when it seems hopeless, when, when giving up is so tempting, while so faith will keep those who are his. God's faithfulness to them, but also their faith in him and his faithfulness. Which I take it is why our author for this morning quotes Habakkuk there in verse 38 at the conclusion to the chapter. He says, now the heat has really been turned up for you Christians. In the midst of persecution for following Jesus, keep trusting the God who is trustworthy. He won't let you down. Live by faith. Then he hammers it home again in verse 39 Uh, But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. I think it, verse 39, is something of a a summary for our verses this morning. The conclusion for the chapter summarises what we're looking at um, for our verses. So, I think the first half there of verse 39, the don't shrink back, do you see it? That, That parallels verse 26 to 31. And then the second half of verse 39, do have faith, parallels verse 32 to 39. So two points this morning, don't shrink back and do have faith. Don't shrink back. Do you remember the storyline so far in Hebrews is is that Jesus has come and everything has changed. The Old Testament sacrificial system, that, that was just a shadow. That wasn't the real deal. It couldn't actually deal with sin. It served a purpose for a time, but it was pointing ahead to something more, something better, when when sins would finally be dealt with, when we would finally be clean. And Jesus has come, and everything has changed. And yet Christians are drifting away from church. Persecution has arrived, and people have left. They've gone. They've stopped meeting together, it seems, from last week. That the anchor wasn't deep enough, and so people are are drifting. 
drifting back to sacrifices that were tolerable and respectable and legal. That the proverbial pews are, are emptying. And yet what a ferocious warning against that drifting there in verse 26 and 27. To deliberately keep on sinning, I take it, is to persistently, doggedly, knowingly turn your back on the gospel. That's the category of sin going on here. It's a purposeful sweeping aside of God's blessings. So look at how he describes them in verse 29. Uh, They are people who have rejected God's plan of salvation. They have trampled the Son of God underfoot. Do you remember he's been seeking to explode our vision of who Jesus is? He's not just one voice among many. He is the Word. God has spoken. He, he's the one through whom it was all created. He's the heir to which it's all going. He's the one who sustains every morning. And as you turn your back on him, so you trample him underfoot. And that is not wise. See, they have treated the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. The the new covenant, the gospel of grace that we've been looking at, it means that this treadmill of religion is done away with. It's done away with because we have a better priest, a high priest who has sat down, he sat down because his work is finished, because his sacrifice was enough. His blood has paid the price. And they have insulted the spirit of grace End of verse 29. That is, you have this Jesus who is awesome and powerful and mighty and you have his spirit-empowered work on the cross which deals with sin and then this God's spirit applies this work of grace to our hearts so that it's something no longer out there but in here. It becomes real. And if you turn your back and you've insulted him, then that is not sensible. They think they've just stopped coming to church but actually they're sweeping aside God's blessings. And verse 28, under the old covenant, under Moses, with just two or three witnesses, if you rejected the law, you could die without mercy. But that was just a shadow. This is reality. This is the main event. How much more perilous to turn your back now Now Jesus is here. Rather than having faith in God's plan of Jesus, they've turned back to something else. Now for those of us, perhaps you get a bit twitchy in verse 26, because there is this sin that we can't shift, and we battle with it, and we struggle with it, and we think, is that me? Do I deliberately keep on sinning? I don't think that's what's happening here. So if that is you, be encouraged. Do deal with that sin. Put it to death daily. Ask God to help you kill it. Don't flirt with it. But deliberately keeping on sinning here, I think, is a turning your back on these amazing gospel blessings. John Calvin says, there's no offering left for those who reject the death of Christ because such rejection does not come from some particular offence, but from a total rejection 
So it's turning your back on God's blessings in the gospel. So it's as if you're drowning in water and you've tried swimming and you're tired. The waves are just too choppy. You can't keep afloat and you're going under and someone throws you a life belt and shouts, put it on, put it around you. Hold on to it, it's your only hope. Never let go of it. And you say, no thanks. That's very kind of you. It looks like it might help, but actually I'd rather go on swimming. And the life belt is the gospel of Jesus. And we let go at our peril. Maybe your question though is, well this all sounds a bit stern and a bit scary for my liking. I thought I was saved by grace and basically once I'm in, then I'm in. And the trouble is though, if you read through Hebrews, which we haven't done, But if you read through from beginning, you would encounter a number of warnings from Israel's history. He's longing for us to learn the lessons from Israel's past. God uses people, and God uses warnings from people, to stop us drifting off. So in chapters 3 and 4, we read of the generation who, who set out from Egypt, rescued by God, and yet they stopped listening to his voice. And so we are to keep listening, to keep trusting, to keep having faith. Because if we stop trusting Jesus, if we throw the life jacket back, then who else is there to listen to? Who else can deal with sin? If we show ourselves to not be one of his by finally rejecting him, then then what sacrifice is left? But that's why he uses the the verse there in, in verse 30, the quote from Deuteronomy, it's from the Song of Moses. Do you remember the end of Deuteronomy? You've got Moses on the edge of the Promised Land, the last few words of his life, leaving his, his verbal legacy. And he is urging them to be faithful in the land, warning them to keep trusting God. If you turn your back on him, if you drift off like our forefathers did, you will be punished. If you throw away the life jacket, there's nothing left. So you find these verses scary? Good. Good, we're meant to. That's the point. They are meant to warn us. They are meant to make us hold on tightly. Verse 31 is a chilling verse. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. How else is their sin going to be dealt with if they reject God's plan for dealing with sin? In God's economy, either you pay for your own sin or he pays for it for you on the cross. There's no grey area. So let me urge you to do that every morning. Please, to to not shrink back. To keep trusting the gospel. Distrust is is a once in a lifetime thing. It's a decision we make one day to stop following self and to start following him. But it's an everyday thing as well. Every day is a grace day. Trust him every morning. And so don't shrink back. Verse 26 to 31. Secondly, do have faith. Verse 32 to 39. Let me read those verses again for us. He writes, Remember those early days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. 
At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed but to those who have faith and are saved. Look at the church you started off so well. You, you took the hardship. You took the hassle in your stride. It's a glowing CV for them. They were prepared to suffer. They were publicly exposed for insults. They, they stood with those who were being persecuted. They visited those in prison. They were prepared to give up possessions and property. We don't know if it was uh, state persecution or mob violence but we do know they weren't fair-weather Christians. This isn't just a hobby for them, an extracurricular activity, something to do on the Sabbath. This was real, this was costly. I wonder if persecution comes to the UK, how do you think you'd stand? Of course, it's a reality for countless brothers and sisters all around the world this morning, today, now, as we meet. They are suffering because they follow Jesus. It does strike me that being a Christian here is becoming increasingly countercultural, though. The heat is rising. It's, it's been fascinating to see so many athletes, actually, who, who are prepared to publicly stand up for Jesus to proclaim their faith in him, their thanks to him. And the reason it's fascinating is because it's so uncommon. It seems to me it's so rare. So it's been good to hear. I was speaking to a friend recently who, who knows a particular church very well. He said that people there were very well taught. They were very consistent heading to church week after week. But he wondered if persecution came, then how many would still be there? How do you think you would do? If the situation in Hebrews, as we see it there, becomes our situation here. I guess the question we ask then is, how are we doing now in the little things? That seems to me the way that God works in the small things of life. Standing out at work or in family gatherings or sports clubs or in class or whatever it might be. Those awkward moments in the nitty-gritty of life. How are you doing there? It seems to me the little things train us for the big things. If you're anything like me, you want to say to these people, what was your secret? How were you prepared to, to suffer so intently, to keep going? What do you know that I don't? It seems to me the answer is simple. They had their eyes on the goal. So look at the verse 34 and 35 again. How can they keep going? Because they know where they're going. You knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Do you see, when you know what's coming then, 
then you know how to live for now. You know what matters now. And when you know it's not forever, then you know that you can just press on and keep going now. And when you know there's a reward for keeping going, then you know that it's worth it now. A little bit of hard stuff now for a lot of good stuff then. So keep trusting, keep that goal in mind. And look, verse 37, Jesus is coming back, he won't delay, it is certain. Verse 38, God's righteous people will live by faith and keep trusting him. Just as in Habakkuk's day, with all the Babylonian hordes charging towards them, in the midst of terror and confusion, or in the midst of our daily hassles, low-scale frustrations, awkward moments at work, in the midst of life, trust the one who is trustworthy. Just a couple of thoughts as we draw to a close. A couple of thoughts for us as Mordrum Road Church. Um, just to chew over this week, perhaps, to take with you. The first is the notice the we. When we read the Bible, too easily our default listening position is, well, what does this mean for me? That might be due to our sin, that might be due to our cultural bias, individualism, but often the better question to ask is, what does this mean for us? This is a warning for all of us. Now, he does use you there in verse 36, for example. You need to persevere. But mostly through the passage, he uses we. That is, the writer does not excuse himself from this warning. So, verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received, or verse 30, for we know him who said... Or verse 39, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Which means even those in authority, or in leadership I take it, well we need to be careful to hear and to heed these warnings. Which means even if you've been a Christian for 80 years, you must not shrink back. You must have faith. How easily to think that we are fine now and these don't really matter for us because we're okay, thank you. But the writer of the Hebrew says, we. This is a warning for all Christians. We can think that we've graduated, we can think that we're not susceptible and then we can slide into pride. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Spurgeon said, pride has 10,000 shapes. It is not always that stiff and starched gentleman that you picture it. It is a vile, creeping, insinuating thing that will twist itself like a serpent into our hearts. It will talk of humility and prate about being dust and ashes. I've known men talk about their corruption most marvellously, pretending to be all humility, while at the same time they were the proudest wretches that could be found this side the gulf of separation. You see, he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning. Leaders, older Christians, all of us, heed the warning. Keep humble, keep clinging to the life jacket. And do that together. Help each other do that. 
Notice too this time scale. So the 100 metre men's final took a little under 10 seconds. Diving last night, each one was a little, around about 1.6 seconds. Our world is one of the quick fix of loans rather than having to save up. We get impatient when a web page won't load, when we have to queue, when things take time. And yet it's striking in these verses and beyond that the Christian life is one of endurance. This is years and decades type stuff. So verse 32, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Fittingly, the conflict word is, is from the athletics arena. It's, it's contest. The imagery is picked up again in chapter 12. Do you remember when we looked at it with, with Woody last June? Run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Verse 36, we persevere. That is, you keep on doing the will of God. We're contesting and we're persevering and we're keeping going. What is the will of God there in 36? I take it from the context of these chapters. It is drawing near to God with a sincere heart. It's holding unswervingly to the hope that we profess. It's considering how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's keeping meeting together and encouraging each other. It's keeping remembering the warnings of shrinking away. It's keeping each other's eyes fixed on Jesus. We persevere in doing the will of God. This isn't a 100 metre sprint. This is a marathon. This is an ultra marathon. This is keeping going. And yet so often the danger with a Sunday morning sermon is that we look at a passage and we think about it and we're encouraged or we're challenged and yet next week it's all gone. But our writer says these truths are for this week and next week and next month and next year. These truths are for life. I'm going to pray now that the Lord in his kindness would imprint these truths upon us not just for the next few days but for eternity so that we might persevere for a lifetime so that we might not shrink back and that we might have faith